Hey everyone, welcome to the Cattleman You Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Rose, the founder and CEO of K Rose Company and Cattleman You. Through our conversations here, we share the latest ideas and techniques to help you start, improve, and expand your farmer ranch. Join us as we visit with industry experts and cattle producers to get honest ins and outs of beef production. We'll dive into topics such as cattle handling, nutrition, cattle markets, genetics, and so much more. We encourage everyone who's involved in the industry to listen. Let's dive in. We are excited to have Lauren join us on the Kettleman You podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank y'all for having me. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background in agriculture? Okay. Um, So my name is Lauren Klein. I am currently an assistant professor in agricultural leadership at Oklahoma State University, Um, but I'll go back to the beginning. I grew up in central Florida. So I like to tell people that I grew up in the middle of cow pastures and orange groves, but close enough to Disney and the beach that I could enjoy them on a regular basis. So now kind of being out of the state, I realized just my upbringing there, uh, my family owned a produce trucking operation. So it started out um, hauling watermelons, but then by the time I came around, um, our family still hauls quite a bit of produce, fresh produce around the country, as well as other, you know, frozen foods, things of that nature. So Grew up a little bit with just that agribusiness side and logistics side of the industry. Um, We also had just a small, very small kind of cow-calf operation that my uncle ran. He was also a vet in the area. And then, you know, I grew up in 4-H, FFA, all of that stuff. Showed cattle, commercial cattle growing up. And I guess ultimately kind of where that ag background came from, my mom's family is from Southeast Alabama. And my dad's family is from Mississippi. So between the two of them, just a strong agriculture background. That was always a part of our family. When I got ready to go to college, though, with my mom being from Alabama, I kind of knew I was always headed, um, what I would say, out of Florida to Alabama. And so I did my undergrad in ag business at Auburn and originally thought I would either work in some type of ag policy or go back and work for our families produce trucking business, but it was my senior year of college that my ag econ advisor, the late Dr. Hardy, right, uh, kind of saw in me this passion for teaching. And he said, I just really think that you're fighting being an ag teacher. And I was like, "I, I think you're right. So that's what led me to think about even getting a master's degree. Honestly, that wasn't even in my path. But I pursued options and ended up landing at Texas A&M, where I did my master's in ag education. And so I was going through the process, getting certified to teach in Florida. And honestly, I was going to go back and be a middle school ag teacher when another opportunity arose for me to work at a small Christian private school that was starting a diversified ag program. So I got this really neat, unique opportunity to actually help build what I thought would kind of be all right, get to start from scratch. What do I think a really cool undergraduate degree program would look like? And so was there for several years getting that program started and then had an opportunity to go back to the College of Ag at Auburn and essentially be in charge of their ag leadership program, teaching their classes and advising students, as well as leading all undergraduate programming, curriculum development, and academic advising for undergrad students. And so it was while I was there that someone said, well, why don't you just take some PhD classes and see if you like it? And I was like, okay, (laughs) like 
And the bug got me. I realized how much I love to learn. And so after about a year of doing that, my husband said, okay, if you're going to keep doing this, you need to either do it full time or figure it out. And so that's what led me out to Oklahoma State. Um, I did my PhD here in ag education with an emphasis in leadership education and just have happened upon the opportunity as some retirements happened in the department and openings came up, interviewed and applied and have been a faculty member now here for two years. Um, My husband, so I mentioned him earlier, his name is Chad. He is originally from Miami, Oklahoma, and uh, we've been married now, oh my gosh, going on eight years, I think, (laughs) lost track, and we have two little boys, so I'll blame my memory loss on them. Um, (laughs) We have a son that's six and a half and another that's a year and a half old. Did the six and a half year old start school this week? Uh, He started last week. Um, He's in first grade, and I'm telling you, he's a little too big for his britches. He was ready for school to see his friends, but then the second day he was like, do I have to go back? And I was like, yes. And he's like, but I've already been to college. And I was like, dude, just because you've sat through some of my classes does not mean you're done. <laughs> so. uh, today was my nephew's six and a half, turned seven in December. Uh, today was his very first day and he also is too big for his britches <laughs> and he's massively intelligent and he told me he's the second smartest person besides Jesus. So oh, we also are raising a child in our family, <laughs> just like yours. <laughs> I was gonna say, it has to be something about just like that age group. But I'm like, are we already getting uh, a yeah. forward, you know, what do they call it? Foreshadowing of like what it's going to be like when he's a teenager. But yeah, yeah it's great. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I don't feel that old, but it was. 12 years ago or something um, since I entered college and ag leadership was not an option at Montana State University, or maybe I just overlooked it. But but for those listeners, can you kind of talk a little bit about what's involved in that program kind of before we dive a little bit into leadership education and the importance of it, but just overview of what that program is. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll try my best to give brief history um, because I would say we are still an emerging field as far as like academia speak of it. But um, here at Oklahoma State, we have been a full program now for 15 years. So we were actually the first program at a land grant institution to have an undergraduate major in agricultural leadership. The best way that I describe it to people as far as what is it that we do, what do we study, what do we research, you know, our departments that we're typically housed in are agricultural education, communications, and leadership. And so we're the people, people of agriculture. I tell people all the time, we can talk a lot about feeding the world, but we also need to talk about the people we're feeding and the people who are producing that food. That's all part of the process. And so In colleges of agriculture, we tend to be focused on that side of things. And so, you know, if you are wanting to teach people about agriculture, you might go ag education. If you're wanting to tell people about agriculture, you might go ag com. But if you're wanting to work with the people in agriculture and understand them, ag leadership is probably where you'll end up. And I would say ultimately what we look at is how in the world as leaders, as people in agriculture, do we influence change? Um, I think everybody would shake their head and say change is really hard. And so we're looking at how, how can we influence behavior 
but do it through this lens of leadership and the relationships that we have with each other. Um, We have lots of examples in ag and especially with extension where we can have the best research data on why someone should change a particular production practice or what have you, but then nobody adopts it. Why is that? And sometimes it's not so black and white and it doesn't matter how much data you produce people. Sometimes it has to do with the relationships. And so what can we do as leaders in the industry to adapt our behavior in order to be a stronger influence to those around us? Yeah. And I think that leadership is undervalued in rural America, especially. So I heard a really interesting statistic and you'll probably know the exact statistic, but our extension office sent it out. It's either one in seven or one in six people in rural communities need to be involved in a leadership role in order for rural communities to survive. And so when we think of ourselves in rural communities and being leaders, What do you think are reasons that we need more leaders in rural communities? And as we develop ourselves in rural, like as leaders, what are some of those ways we can become better leaders and things we should look for as new leaders are emerging? So that's kind of a weighted question. Yeah, that is. I was going to say, I actually currently am on some community-based projects in rural parts of Oklahoma specifically trying to tackle this issue. There's one area, um, I won't call the you know, area out by name or anything, but in particular in this area, when we look at leadership and if we were to use civic leadership, so you know, think of Lions Clubs, Rotary, Chambers of Commerce, this particular area has had um, such a decline in leadership that those organizations aren't even in existence anymore. And so if you think about, well, why does that matter? Who's modeling for the next generation what that looks like to invest and contribute back to your community? And in rural areas where resources are slim, it takes everyone investing in and being a part of that community. I think one of the struggles, and this is something that we talk about um, when we discuss kind of what we know about leadership and how it's changed over time, is that a lot of us tend to, whether we realize it or not, hold positions as the end-all be-all of leadership. And what we actually know is leadership is a process. And really the more times that a person can be out of the center of what's going on and the more other people can be brought into the process to contribute, the better leadership is going to be in that community. And so a lot of it has to be this paradigm shift in rural communities that, you know, I might not have a position but I'm actually a big part of leadership in my community because I'm a contributing member of it. And that also puts the onus back on those who may have some type of positional leadership. Maybe they are a city manager. Maybe they are a member of their school board. Are they providing opportunities to bring people into that process or are they kind of holding on to that power to themselves? Some of the research that we've been doing in rural communities, we hear over and over again that it's the same people doing things. Well, that's kind of problematic, right? That should be a telltale sign that like, we're not bringing enough people in. I don't know, this may be like a deep dive in a different area, but again, to me, it all goes back to relationships. And so where are we building those relationships in our rural communities? When our demographics change, are we considering that? There's this big difference between management and leadership and 
what I like to say is that as leaders, we're not just focused on getting things done. We're thinking, we're moving forward. We're considering how people's values and cultures might be different. And so if we aren't constantly asking ourselves that sometimes in rural communities, that's where we kind of start to have this leadership void because we're just kind of trying to keep things status quo and keep them going and not thinking about that future. Yeah. And in rural communities in particular, which is where most people involved in agriculture find themselves, right? We don't see all people involved in agriculture find themselves in rural communities, but I would say a majority. It is easy to avoid leadership positions naturally because we lead this really busy lifestyle. But I think that if we're going to lead and become effective leaders, there is a game plan and it involves coaching Little League or being on the school board. And it has some of these different roles. And so when we're developing some of these leadership skills, what are some things that we can do to make us better leaders that are kind of ground level things that we can do if it's just coaching Little League and it's not running for president? (laughs) Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I do think, you know, getting involved and again, not having to have a position is an easy spot. And this may sound a little cheesy to some listeners of the podcast, but at the ground level, when I talk about, okay, what does it mean to be an effective leader? You've got to understand yourself before you can even begin to understand others to then be able to work well with them. And a lot of us don't take enough time to slow down and do that. Really the place to start with that, honestly, is to think about what are the things that we value and to do it in an honest way. And the reason why I say that is that we all are influenced by things external to us, whether we want to admit it. We can be in different settings. And so, and if someone asks us what we value, our answer might be a smidge different based on what we think is socially acceptable. But if we can sit down and be really true with ourselves about what we value, we're going to understand then why we make the decisions that we make. We talk about this idea of authentic leadership. And those are the leaders whose actions line up with what they say they value and what they say their goals are. We probably could all think of an example of someone who says one thing and does another. We learned those lessons as a kid, you know, you either walk the walk, talk the talk or get out of the way. Right. But we can, we can recognize it in someone else. So easy that we're like, Hey, they told us they value family, but yet we get no time off to ever actually spend time with family. So do they value family? We can do that really well with others, but it's a little bit harder to do with ourselves and admit where there's inconsistencies, but we've got to do that. And I think by understanding our values, it helps us not only act and be more authentic with other people, but it also gives us a little bit more grace to understand other people. I tell my students all the time, like they'll want to say, well, this particular group of people doesn't value what I value. Or they don't have values, right? Like we'll throw that out a lot. Like, well, they must not have any values. The next generation is going to the pits. They have no values. No, they do. Everybody values something. It's just that we might all value different things. And oftentimes we're not appreciating what other people value because we're not even clear on what it is we value. Maybe it's just what we've been told to value growing up. So that's really, I think, 
you've just got to know who you are authentically before you can be a good leader, be an effective leader. Um, it's also kind of a part of what we call self-awareness. And so um, a lot of folks will talk about emotional intelligence and understanding who you are, what your own behaviors are, your thoughts and attitudes also lets you be able to regulate them. So I may know that I tend to overreact in these types of situations. Well, now that I know that about myself, when those situations happen, I can regulate my behavior better. But if I can't, again, if I don't even know enough about myself to recognize them, how in the world can I regulate them? And then if I can't regulate my own behavior, how am I going to influence the behavior of others? So it's kind of this step on process of just slowing down and taking the time to think through those things for yourself. Find a friend to talk to. There's different types of coaching things that are available. There's journals, stuff like that. That again, I think it's worth the 10 minutes of your time a week just to, and if you're like, well, I don't know what I value. Look at your calendar. Look at your calendar for a week, for two weeks. Where, you know, we oftentimes put put our time and our money towards the things we value. That can help give you a clue. And if you're kind of surprised by what those things are that you are valuing, and it maybe doesn't line up with what you think should be important, maybe that then is a clue to how can I align myself more authentically with what I think is important. Yeah, they say your calendar and your bank account, right? Yep, exactly. Those are the things that talk about values. Yes. Ladies, this one's for you. Have you been looking for the perfect planner that will help you start on the right foot? We've created the Kettleman U Planner for ranch women, wives, mothers, and daughters who are looking to improve their operation. Our planner is packed full of the tools that will help you learn more about ranching, working with others, and knowing yourself. Not only does it include a calendar, but it's also jam-packed full of intentional questions and thoughts and action items to move the needle forward. Grab yours today at kettlemanulive.com slash planner. One thing that I think has been really interesting in leadership is the Enneagram. Oh, yeah. Because people talk about the Enneagram in two distinct ways. How the Enneagram affects them or how they use the Enneagram to relate to others. Mm -hmm. And they only talk about it in those two ways. Yeah. And it's very different. And leaders... Mm -hmm. which is your next point that we're going to talk about. But leaders are very intentional about using the Enneagram to relate to others. How can I use it to relate to my spouse? How can I use it to relate to my staff? How can I use it to relate to my friends? And I see on social media all the time that good leaders use the Enneagram as a tool to relate to others. And it's just a behavior change. Mm -hmm. But one thing you've mentioned is making sure that you can relate and be effective around others and understanding. And I just noticed that shift in the Enneagram just brings it to light for me because yeah. I'm an eight on the Enneagram. And so I pay attention to the Enneagram. And so it's my we use. <laughs> yeah, we use for hiring. And yeah. so I love to, I'm really just honed in on the Enneagram, but mm-hmm. it's really interesting to me where you can see just individuals and in behavior, right? They either talk yep. about their number and how they act, or they talk about how it relates to other people. And so 
when we look at relating and interacting with other people, what are some tips on connecting to other people, understanding other people, building relationships? Because in life, working with other people is the key to everything. It's to a good marriage, to a good friendship. I mean, if you're involved in any leadership, any partnership of any kind, business, anything, there's Mm -hmm. multiple people. And I think that being effective as leaders, you have to get along and be able to communicate with someone else. Oh, absolutely. You know, and this maybe is kind of, it's an answer to this question as well as adding on a little bit to the one before, but I'll be honest, I have a love-hate relationship with personality assessments. So from a uh, geeky leadership research standpoint, we kind of understand there's more complexity to leadership than just who we are as people. Again, it's this process. And so on some instances, these personality assessments will help us understand ourselves better but they're not the end all be all. Like they actually don't prove to us whether someone's going to be a good leader or an effective leader or not. So, and two, like some of them are really sound. And what I mean by that is like, we have a lot of research that shows that yes, these are the dimensions of personality. And then we have some that I kind of liken to, it's like choosing on a BuzzFeed (laughs) blog what Harry Potter house you're in, you know, like there's not really any research or data to support it. And so I tend while I do use some different personality assessments, I tend to lean really heavily on what is called the big five from a psychology standpoint. Like this is for decades has not been disproven as far as for the most part, we all have kind of five main dimensions to our personality and we all kind of fall somewhere on the spectrum of each of those dimensions. But what I have found with leaders and how that helps us work with other people, knowing kind of our personality traits and how we, again, just like how our characteristics are going to inform our behavior helps us oftentimes just communicate better. An example I'll give for myself is I found out um, when I was a state FFA officer, I did a particular personality assessment and found out that I'm highly analytical awesome. Like it was like everything in the world finally made sense to me. And like, it's like, yes, I am. Like, I want to see things from all different perspectives. I ask a lot of questions. I'm kind of slow to make decisions because I want to make sure I have all the information. Well, what I started realizing about myself is that when I was in teams or group situations, when I was in the workplace with people, that analyticalness of me oftentimes came off as critical. I was the person asking a lot of questions. So people thought I always disagreed with them. And what I realized over time and after some feedback with colleagues that I really trusted and valued their feedback, I realized I just needed to do a better job of communicating who I am. I don't need to use it as a crutch or make an excuse for it. But when we're working on a project, I probably need to let people know ahead of time, like, hey, just know when I ask questions, it's just because I want to make this the best it can be. And I want to make sure we've thought through plan B, C, D down the road in case something goes wrong. It's not because I think your idea is bad. Half the time, what I ask questions about, I don't even like the idea. I'm just asking. (laughs) And so me just simply doing that as a leader has made my relationships with the people I work with so much better. And again, it goes back to that self-awareness. If I didn't know that about myself, I wouldn't know how to communicate that to other people. 
it also gives me this standpoint of appreciating the people I work with for who they are and not what I wish that they would be. When I said I have this love-hate relationship with personality assessments is that sometimes we can put people in a box because of it. There's one in particular that is the Myers-Briggs. One of the dimensions it looks at is, are you extroverted or introverted? And someone takes it and it's interesting. It's on this scale of one to a hundred and a person just happens to score a 48. So they get labeled introvert when really they're kind of in the middle. But what do we start doing? We start treating that person as introverted. Oh, well, they're not going to want to come to a dinner, you know, after our Farm Bureau meeting tonight because they're introverted. No, they probably would. But you've just labeled them and you've just assumed and stereotyped what you think you know about them. So we have to be really cautious about doing that and instead saying, okay, no, this person kind of falls in the middle. So we need to understand that, you know, sometimes they're going to be great in social situations, but they're also probably going to need some downtime too. They're not going to be like the highly extroverted person who gets all of their energy by interacting with other people. And so I, again, like I keep coming back to the word grace. I think it just helps us have grace for the people we work with better. And if we can assume the best of them and not assume the worst and see what it is they're bringing to the table, it's going to make our working relationships a lot better. I think the thing to remember is we're human Mm -hmm. and people are human and not every day is perfect. And that's why we need leaders is to work with other people and to remember that every situation and and how we react and people have bad days all the time and people have great days all the time. But I think as leaders, oftentimes we put them up on this little ledge, right? And you can never have a bad day, (laughs) which is not true, but we have to give lots of grace as leaders. And I don't think in agriculture, we have enough people in leadership positions. And I think that's something that in your position you're doing is training more people in our generation and the next generation to be leaders. And why do you think that we need to just keep kind of filling the funnel full of leaders in this growing, you know, generation so that we continue to have more leaders ready to serve the industry? Absolutely. So I kind of, you know, earlier had mentioned this difference between management and leadership. Managers are focused on status quo. Their job is like, how do we keep the operation running most efficiently, productively? I I don't want any chaos, right? Leaders, like I said, are kind of focused on, okay, how do I influence change, but also how do I be prepared for the change that's going to occur? And I I think as agriculturalists, we would all agree and have experienced this, that things are going to change and we've either got to be ready for it, or if we're just wanting to keep status quo, if that's all we're doing and that's all we're thinking about, we're going to get left behind. And so programs like ours are trying to develop the capacity of our agriculturalists to be thinking about change and being a part of influencing where that change is going. And that requires a different set of skills. It requires people skills. Um, I kind of laugh all the time, like reports keep coming out about like, what what do we need college graduates or even people with technical degrees? What what are those skills 
that they need to be effective in the workplace, specifically in agriculture and natural resources. And usually eight of the 10 listed are leadership skills. Some people call them soft skills. I like to call them power skills. <laughs> like I just am like, you know, they're, they're really powerful. They're impactful. And so, you know, part of that is, is not just so much learning, worrying about, okay, what's most efficient. How do we keep the status quo? But can we think about how complex things really are? Are we critically thinking about things and are we pulling in different perspectives to help us? Because our world is so interconnected now that we can't just think that there's an easy answer to everything. And that's a little bit of kind of what we here at Oklahoma State in our program, we have what we call adaptive leadership that we kind of frame our coursework around. And it's this idea of how do we help people be able to identify whether the issue they're having is a technical issue or an adaptive issue. And the difference between those two things is that a technical issue is something that, yes, there's a quick and easy answer for that. We can go to the manual and we can figure out how to fix the tractor or like my papa, you just know how to do it. <laughs> you know, take, he can take an engine apart and put it right back together and not look at a single piece of paper, but a technical problem with an easy, quick technical solution. But adaptive challenges, on the other hand, are those things where like they might appear like a technical issue on the, you know, just surface. But when we really get down to the heart of it, oftentimes it's an issue where people's beliefs attitudes or cultures are conflicting with each other. I give this example and I hope my dad does not listen to this um, (laughs) because he doesn't know I use him as an example with this. And my dad is fantastic, but I remember, goodness, I think it was in high school or early college. And my dad just came home one night complaining because a different produce broker that they started working with Instead of calling him about a load of strawberries or a load of watermelons that needed to go from Miami to Atlanta, he got an email, <laughs> right? I mean, he was, he's like, oh, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and he's like, this is the most, and I was like, actually, like, I'm not surprised, dad. Like I just started college and got told the official form of communication on college was on my college campus was email now. And he's like, I'm not doing it. Mm -mm." And, you know, from just initial reaction to that, you would say, oh, this is a technical problem. He is a boomer and he just needs to learn how to use technology, right? Like that's what we would say. Well, we just need to teach him how to use it. But the more I talked with my dad over time about it, what I actually found was my dad valued the relationships he built with the people he worked with over the phone. And even though it might not be in person all the time, the fact that he would be talking to a broker or someone at a packing house multiple times a week developed a strong bond. And he felt like communicating by email was going to lessen what that relationship could be. So what the problem really was, was a cultural problem, not just this technical problem. I could provide my dad training all day on email, but that wasn't going to make him start using email to communicate. And so I think in agriculture, we've got to start looking at some of our challenges in that way and get below the surface, but we need people skilled, ready to help do that. And I think that's what our program is hopefully trying to graduate students who are ready to be a part and help with that process. They're not going to have all the answers, but they can help us in the industry facilitate that process. 
great. One thing that it made me think of is I saw this website on TikTok that you go to and it makes you put in or guess all of the towns in the United States that you can guess. And the goal is to guess the percentage of the population. So of course you can guess Houston and LA and Uh Miami and New York and get a good chunk, 10, 20%. And then you try to guess the ones that are least guessed, right? But you have to spell them right. And you can't open Google while you have this website. Open. Oh, I would fail at that. <laughs> I've done it several times. But what it reminds me is how important it is to do deep work like that and to keep those skills in our brain. We can listen to podcasts and to books and to do all these things, but there are some skills that we have to train ourselves and we have to constantly be sharpening that pencil that if we don't do, we're going to lose. And some of the things that you're teaching kids about leadership, about in college, if we don't continue to do as leaders, as, you know, heads of household, as managers and business we're going to lose. Like it's a use it or lose it. And so I just love that. I saw it on TikTok and I was like, oh, I got to guess. And it's hard. I mean, I can't get 25% of the population because one, you have to spell it right. I was going to say, that's where I would lose. I have this rule that like, if I write something on the board in a marker, it's spelled right. Just trust me. <laughs> My spelling's horrible. But it's so fun for me to just challenge myself because one, it's like this pressure thing. I mean, I drive through small towns all the time, but to remember to sit there and to remember one, to have patience with yourself, to Mm -hmm. use a skill, to think about the towns that you drive through. And I think we got to, we got to be intentional about practicing those skills that we know are skills that we need. And I also am listening to the book, Deep Work. I've listened to it Uh, um, many times. But I think to be a good leader, you have to be intentional about building those skills. And I'm not sure that that's an easy thing to think about in your 20s, is that you're going to reach a point where your brain just doesn't work the same. And you kind of got to prep it for when it doesn't, when the ding of your email can distract you for the whole day. You can be like, what did I do today? Oh my gosh. It is so funny. You said that I literally exited out of my email on my calendar before coming on here so that it wouldn't distract me. I got to write a handwritten to-do list. Yeah. Every day. Girl. (laughs) Okay. A tool you use or, and you teach, I'm assuming is a SWOT Mm -hmm. analysis, which is Something I use with my clients, we use on projects. Um, I highly recommend it if any of our listeners have never used it. I use it for decisions personally. Mm -hmm. And can you kind of talk about how to implement it, what it is, and why you recommend it? Absolutely. Yeah. So a SWOT analysis, it's a business analysis tool. And so um, a lot of times, like the first time I ever learned about it, I was in an ag business management course. Again, used a lot in business, but it's actually really helpful in leadership as well when we're working with organizations. And so when I use the word organizations, it could mean your small farm, your small ranch to 
a county farm bureau group or cattlemen's group, whatever it may be. But what it does is it helps you think about where are things going well, where are things not going well, and then how can you leverage perhaps these opportunities that you have? So again, from a leadership standpoint, thinking about the future, like looking at what resources we have and what our strengths are and how do we capitalize on those? How do we how do we build on those things instead of just focusing on everything that's going wrong? Um, but then we it does have you think about those threats. So again, thinking about what the challenges may be so that rather than having to react to changes and problems, we can actually be proactive about them. I have found it really helpful to use it in the context of talking about adaptive leadership because um, most groups that I have worked with to do a SWOT analysis where we identify strengths, identify our weaknesses, look at opportunities, look at threats, we can kind of lay all those things out. And what we often find is that, again, kind of our weaknesses sometimes are those technical challenges. There are those things that, you know what, we can identify this as a weakness, but if we make this little tweak in our organization, we can probably make it better. It's those threats that are not so easy to solve. And so it actually makes it really easy for us to figure out what those adaptive challenges are and to know, okay, when we start talking about this issue, we probably need to do a deeper dive and actually start figuring out what are the cultural norms? Why is this happening? Um, I had the opportunity to earn still working with a project here, uh, partnering with the vet school at OSU. They have a project right now where they're trying to increase the number of vet students that want to become rural veterinarians because there is such a shortage for rural veterinarians. And so it's a mentoring program between rural, current rural veterinarians and current vet students. And so I was asked to come in uh, for one module to do leadership development. And we did a SWOT analysis to say, okay, when it comes to rural veterinary practice, what are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? What opportunities are there? What are the threats? And then we divided those up and we said, okay, these are technical things we can fix. But these adaptive challenges, these are a little bit tougher. So, you know, just saying increased pay for rural veterinarians isn't going to be the one answer we need to make more students want to work in rural areas. There's perhaps some other things. And again, shockingly, but not shockingly, more complexity to it. And so um, it's something that as they've been a part of this year-long program, like we've consistently gone back to and talked about and said, okay, we think this is an easy problem, but maybe we're actually dealing with different values and different beliefs. And so how do we start to tackle and influence those? I think it's important that organizations, again, take that time to work through that because you may be, I call it throw in wet toilet paper at the wall. You just hope something sticks. But if we're not really figuring out what the real challenges are, we're wasting a lot of our effort. Absolutely. Can you talk about how to develop high quality relationships mm-hmm. as producers in the beef industry, which I think is challenging? One, because we are a lot of times it's producer to producer. So we are in community with our neighbors in a lot of rural America, or we have producer to consumer and they're either customers of ours, right? So we sell direct to consumer um, or they might be people we see at church are, you know, 
people in the community, but it might not be a frequent relationship. And so how can we develop some high quality relationships, no matter the frequency in that relationship? Absolutely. Um, high quality relationships are so important. And I think I've, this is probably the third or fourth time I've said it. I think at the end of the day, leadership boils down to relationships. Yes, we need to be task oriented and we need to be getting things done. But if we are not developing relationships with each other, it's really going to fizzle out. We're just kind of plateau in what we're able to accomplish. Um, When we look at what constitutes a high quality relationship, it's going to sound kind of like a duh when I say it. But what's ultimately been found is do people, when they're with you, feel like they're in your in-group or their (laughs) out-group? So, I mean, like, we're going to harken back to, like, elementary school playground days, right? Like, (laughs) were you a part of that clique? Were you not? Like, you knew. You knew whether you were part of someone's in-group or not. I am honest with my students. We kind of all like to talk about times when we've been a part of the out-group, but I'll admit, In high school, I was part of the in-group when it came to my high school ag program. My high school ag teacher had been my ag teacher since sixth grade all the way through 12th grade. And there were a group of us that did everything with her, got asked to do everything, went to every contest. I was part of the in-group and I benefited from that. But there were also people in our program that were part of the out-group. And I think as leaders... You know, we can't always, we, we can't control other people's behaviors or their perceptions, but we should be striving to make everyone feel like they're a part of our in-group. I'm not saying that we're always going to like everybody, but they shouldn't know, you know, they, they shouldn't know. And we should be looking for those opportunities to make sure whether it is another producer that we occasionally interact with, or if it's our direct sale consumer that we see on a monthly basis, they need to feel like they're part of your in-group. And a part of that takes transparency on our part. And again, authenticity. If we don't know who we are and we're acting different every time we're around people, they're not going to want a part of it. But the other piece is, is we have to build trust. And trust comes when we are vulnerable with people. And it comes when we're willing to share the leadership process. Do we allow the people that we're around to take on new roles and responsibilities? How how do we be a leadership? Do we view it as a shared process or do we view it as a position? And so I get to be the one that makes all the decisions. Um, This might be a little controversial, but we're not very good at that in ag. I mean, I'm just thinking about the direct sell to consumer relationship. We want to tell consumers what they want. We, we do not like being told by consumers what they want. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And that doesn't work in a lot of other industries. In a capitalistic market, businesses respond to consumer demands. And, and that also drives innovation. And so I think sometimes it's us listening more, even if that's going to mean some change. And again, that may be controversial and you may not want this to go. No, no, no. I think it's... It's a great point. That wouldn't wouldn't fly in any other business. Yeah, you're correct. Um, So what, you know, are we wanting a one-way relationship with the people we're with where they're listening to us? Or are we really wanting a relationship where it's mutual 
And we're only going to get to a high quality relationship if it's mutual. And that requires us to be humble at times and to listen and to be willing to change. Well, change doesn't seem so hard if we have the tools to help us manage that. And that's where I think leadership comes in. And that's where we're getting away from this idea of it being a person who's the leader, but all of us having this ability to manage change in the process. And so, yeah. What's my philosophy on that? Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> that's I think the other thing in trouble. <laughs> no, I think the other thing that is interesting about our behavior with consumers is oftentimes what consumers might say they want versus what they buy are two different stories, and we don't seem to like what they spend their money on because it goes against what we want them to say. Right. And so we just disregard that completely. <laughs> we can hawk ourselves, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, I, it's, it's wild. Yeah. And that's where, like, I go back to that, like, you know, just having the ability to adapt to change and to thrive. My dad adopted email. He did. <laughs> he uses email now. <laughs> You know, so it is possible. It's just, are we in that mindset to listen? You know, if, if my dad had not been a, had not been willing to change some of how we did business, I mean, the business would have gone under 15, 20 years ago. We would have been left in the dust. And so I think, I think too, if we can just accept that change is inevitable, it gives us a better disposition of how we're approaching things. Yeah, 100%. So you have some advice for strong leaders in the industry in general, or people who want to become leaders. And before you say that, I'm going to tell a little story and then you can give your advice. So we are currently at MD Anderson, which I've talked a little bit. This episode will come out later when we'll be home, but um, my dad's fighting cancer. And so I've been in Houston and with him during this journey. And one thing, my dad's been very active and a big leader in the beef industry. And one thing I've been very surprised about, and I shouldn't be surprised, but he probably gets four or five calls or text messages or emails a day from men his age, my dad's in his 60s, of guys just checking in on him. And people I didn't think liked him. <laughs> and I'm like, dad, that, that guy likes you. And he's like, oh, he's just... know what's going on with him, right? <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, he's just making sure I'm okay. <laughs> One thing that I think is a lesson we can all learn. And a piece of advice is the impact you make, you may never know. Mm -hmm. And I also think that connecting with someone on social media, I don't really read his Facebook messages. So I don't know how many people Facebook messaged, but he would probably tell me. But picking up the phone, sending a text message, those are way more impactful than a Facebook message. I can tell you right now. And If you want to make an impact, if you want to start to grow some relationships, you got to reach out and it can start whether they're fighting cancer, whether they come across your mind, but it has been amazing to see how many people are taking time out of his day. And it's a lot of the same people. They'll say, great, I'll check back next week. Great. I'll call you next week. Great, I'll check in in a couple of days. And it's just this, like, they're taking time out of their busy day and he's doing great. I mean, you know, he's fighting cancer, but he feels good. He's talking on the phone right now. I'm surprised you can't hear him. But, you well, know, no, I'm I just think, amazed. I think 
I think social media gives us a false sense of relationship. And I don't think that's news to anybody. You know, my advice would be if you don't, if you're not connecting with people, but you know what's going on in their life, that should be a cue to probably shut down social media for a while. Um, And I say that from personal experience. I'm the world's worst phone talker, just not my jam, not, but my goodness, if I'm with you in person, we could talk for hours. And like, I want really deep relationships with people in that way. And I just realized social media for me was like, well, I know what's going on with them. So why do I need to call or talk to them? But when I'm not on it, I need to know what's going on. And it gives me more of a reason to call. And I, I don't think that we can discount also just humanizing each other. We tend, and, it, and it's very much our culture. It's our Western American culture that we view each other in productivity terms. How much are we producing? What do we get out of it versus what we get in it? And we are we were designed and created for a lot more than that. And if we can value each other in that way and realize like, you know, maybe maybe they're not as productive or they don't work in the way you think they should, but what about this with their family life or what have you, if we can, if we can see the nuance and complexity with each other, I think that will strengthen our relationships too. Absolutely. And so I just, um, I was sure you were going to talk about the same things, but it's just been amazing to me about building relationship and all that. And I've just seen it here. Yeah. I mean, we don't, again, that's like, that's probably, if I was to give like one big piece of advice, if anyone's listening that works with other people, be okay with not being task oriented all the time. Like we think that's the end all be all. And we don't want to take the 30 minutes to have lunch together because, well, we work together all the time, but we've got to have this, this, and this. And no, like we need to sit down and have conversations about things other than work. We've got to build that trust. And that's what establishes long-term success. Anytime we look at like, why do businesses fail? Why do organizations fail? It's because the relationships weren't built there. And we think relationships are just going to happen organically, that we don't have to actually invest in them or carve out time for it, but we do. We really do. And so that would be my challenge is, okay, if that's something you don't do well, or that isn't a part of kind of the workplace culture that you have in your production, make time for it, even if it feels weird at first, (laughs) because yeah, it will feel weird. And listen more than you talk. Good leaders listen. I feel like I've done a lot of talking here, but good leaders listen. I think the last thing, and this is like the challenge that I give my students is, are you asking more questions? Than you're answering. And so if you want to be ready and figure out how to deal with change, how to deal with challenges, you need to be asking questions. Don't just assume the first thought that you have or thought that someone else has is the answer. Ask questions, look for more solutions, look for more perspectives, because that's going to make what you ultimately do a million times better than what that first initial thought was. Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to add about leadership? I think the last thing that I would want to add is that we have totally debunked the myth that people are born leaders. There are no set of traits or characteristics of a person that's going to make them a better leader than somebody else. And so, you know, if we can kind of move past that and realize that leadership is not only something that's open to everyone, but is again, a process. We're not reliant on a person to 
be the sage on the stage or the person, you know, up on the pedestal, then we realize we all have a role to play with that and we can find where we fit in that process. Um, I talked a lot about adaptive leadership and I think one of the best books people could read, it's called uh, The Practice of Adaptive Leadership. It's by Ronald Heifetz and some of his colleagues. It takes the theory of adaptive leadership and I think makes it in a very palatable way, gives a lot of business and real world situations and experience throughout it to really understand the theory. I think it's a good place to start if you're wanting to say, okay, maybe maybe I've been focusing on technical stuff and not really getting to the nitty gritty of different behaviors, attitudes, and beliefs. Um, I'd encourage people to read that book. Great. Well, I think this was a great conversation. Thanks so much. I think we absolutely need more leaders and we need to continue to be better leaders and have better relationships, no matter what stage that looks like, no matter um, what phase in life we're in, we need us all. If you're interested in developing um, that muscle of leadership inside you, we will be sure to put contact information um, for you in the show notes in case anyone wants to reach out. Absolutely. I would love that. Great. Thank you so much. And we have a great day. Thank you. Lutz is a business solution firm born and raised in Nebraska with offices in Grand Island, Hastings, Lincoln, and Omaha. They invest in long-term partnerships with farmers and agribusiness owners. Lutz has extensive experience in the agricultural industry and provides accounting, financial, technology, M&A, and staffing solutions tailored to you. To learn more, visit www.lutz.us backslash ag. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Cattleman U podcast. Don't forget to subscribe at cattlemanulive.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to review when you get there. We are excited to learn alongside you and remember the grass is greener where you water it.